Today's scripture reading comes from Jonah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God's word. For the past week, we've been looking at uh, our, one of our core values, what it means to embrace the city. And uh, we talked about Jonah. We started it last week. Jonah is a very brief but important book. And it teaches us how to live <clears throat> in a fragmented society, what it means to live among people who are very different from us, different cultures, different faiths, different lifestyles, different values and ideologies. And we're living in a time where society today is much more fragmented than any other time in, in our history. And we see this in the city. If you look out and see the city, the city is defined by what? People of different cultures, conflicting cultures and races, conflicting religions and values. What does it take to really embrace people who are totally different from you? You know, people that you can avoid, people that you not only dislike, but people at the least um, you have nothing in common with. Don Carson writes, the church is made up of natural enemies. And the book of Jonah answers this question. Primarily in what he learns, what he experiences about the complexities of sin and grace. Jonah's a religious person. He's a prophet. He was called by God. And he was called to preach to the Assyrians at Nineveh, this great emerging empire in his day. And they're the, they're the irreligious people. They're the people of the big city, Nineveh, the capital of what would become the most powerful empire in the world today. So there's three lessons we're going to learn today. Three things. And we're going to unpack the, the whole heart of uh, the complexity of sin and grace that we see in this book. It teaches us how to live around people, among people who are very, very different from you. The strategy, the sermon, and the surrender. Three things. God's strategy, we see that in the call of Jonah again, and, and you're going to see God, uh, God's heart, God's heart for the city. Um, we're going to see it in Jonah's sermon. And it's going to reveal our response to people who are basically just different from us. Our natural response, that is. And we're going to see the king of Nineveh, you know, Nineveh's surrender. How we can hope, how we can find hope for the city. 
First, the strategy. And here we're going to see it in, in the call again, uh, verses 1 to 4. I'm going to read verses 1 to 4 uh, briefly. And I'm going to, we're going to walk through this together. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Verses 1 to 2, virtually a repeat of chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah again. Now, you see what's happened since then. In the beginning, chapter 1, what happened? Jonah was going down, 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 distant, away from God. You know, God calls him and he flees. And that's what you see is a big difference here. In chapter 1, verse 3, when God called him, Jonah rose but to flee. That's what it says. But here, he's been through the belly of the fish. He's come out from the depths. He's been saved. And God calls him again. And we see here, verse 3, Jonah rises, he rose, but this time he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He goes now. He goes to Nineveh. And um, we see, as we see the repeat of the call, in both cases, chapter 1 and chapter 3, God calls Nineveh that great city, he says. And in this passage, in this verse, verse 3, he says it's an exceedingly great city, an inordinately great city. In other words, Nineveh is this important city. On one hand, what does he mean by that? On one hand, that word great, the Hebrew word for great, um, it refers to the magnitude, to the size, to the immensity of the city, the intensity of the city. I lived for many years, about 11 years, in the city of Boston. It's not a huge city, um, but it's considered a great city. It's a very well-known city, and it takes about 40 minutes to rollerblade, when people used to rollerblade, uh, from one end of the city to the other end, about 40 minutes. But here it says Nineveh, the breadth of Nineveh, three days, three days to walk around the city of Nineveh to experience the breadth of the city. That means that no army, there's not a single army in all the world, even today, that's big enough to surround this city, to sack the city. It's exceedingly great. That's what he means. But on the other hand, the word great was kind of a sort of a double entendre. Um, it's a direct reference on one hand to the size, the power of the city. It was exceedingly powerful in military might. But on the other hand, Nineveh was a loud city. That's what he says. It's a great city, meaning it's a loud city. It had a great voice. It was influential. It was important. It was strategic. God is telling Jonah, I need you, I need you to go to Nineveh, that great city, because it's a strategic city for me. Why is it important? The Assyrians, they had a wise method of conquering uh, societies around them, cultures around them. They were a very violent society. They were cruel, and they were known for their massacring of cities as they walked through. They were known to rout a city by walking in with their army and basically taking all the men, and it's a little bit graphic, but they would skin the men alive and hang them in their homes to let people know that if another person were to walk through the city, that the, that the Assyrians were present. And they, what they would do is they would kill off the men, kill off the king, but they would steal, they would, they, would, um, they would exile, they would take the women, they would take the children, and they would take the educational elite, the culture of the city, and they would bring them with them and exile them into the capital, Nineveh. 
And so it was the greatest assimilation project in world history in a way because what they would do is they would take people of different ideologies and different cultures, different language groups, different races, different professions, different, different levels of education. They would bring all these people together, the scientists, the culture, the artists, the musicians, and they would bring them together and bring them into the capital. And so when you walked into Nineveh, you naturally saw the world in front of you. Nineveh is a window to the world. It was a strategic city. Tremendous influence. And there you see God's heart. That's why he's saying it's strategic. Tim Keller, great missiologist, uh, church planner, and pastor in our day, says that the city is pregnant with culture-forming influences. In other words, if you want to influence culture, if you want to change the world, you don't have to leave the country anymore to do that. You just go to the city. Because inside the city, in fact, why are you here in the city? Most of us are here either to study, gain an education, or find your profession, find work, and build your career. But ultimately to what? To do what? You're going to do it, uh, you know, to influence the culture. You're gonna, you're gonna, you want to contribute to society. And God says, I have a heart for the people of the city. On one hand, it's tremendously broken, but it's strategic. It's a place where culture can be influenced because people in the city are naturally open to new ideas. They're curious of new ideas. In fact, in Roman history, uh, the city of Rome, as the city of Rome was converting, it was the pagan societies. The very word pagan was most likely derived from the word country. And so it was the pagan societies on the outskirts of the city, the suburbs, the rural parts that remained closed to the gospel. But it was the people of the city They were the ones that were transforming. They were the ones that were converting. A pagan society has many gods. Many gods. And Christians are called, you know, God says, I need you to go into, I need you, Jonah, to go into Nineveh. I need you to go there and bring justice to the city. Why do we need that? Why do pagan societies need justice? Pagan pagan societies by nature are unjust. By nature, they're violent. What do I mean by that? Only in a culture where you have one God, one concept of truth, can you have one concept of justice. If you don't have one God, if you, don't, if you have many gods, or if you have no God in your life, you have, there's no basis for truth or justice. Why is that? Because think about it. If, you're, if you don't understand, or if you don't know, if you haven't connected with the reality of God in your life, then you're going to believe that either A, we were here by chance or by some sort of natural selection or evolution. You've got to believe that. If you look outside of nature, if, if it isn't God that's governing everything around you, then by nature, by nature, what is, what is society? You know, it's one dominant people conquering over another dominant people. It's us stepping all over one another to get ahead. It's, it's, how do you, it's us dominating, and, you know, another type of person to get ahead, putting them aside at their cost, us getting ahead. That's what it is. That's natural. That's nature. It's a violent society. And a society is built around that. Survival of the fittest, natural selection. In verse 1, God calls Jonah. He's an advisor to kings. He's revered by many people. He says, I need you to speak to Nineveh. I need you to go there. And he goes to tremendous lengths. He he calls Jonah this religious person who's who's very anti-Assyrian. 
And he says, I need you to go there. And he puts him through the storm, and he puts him through the fish, and he puts him three days at the bottom of the sea. Why? He wants to show us this, that we look at people the way Jonah looks at them. In your reflection quotes, there's one written by C.S. Lewis. It comes from The Great Divorce, a book uh, about, uh, it's kind of a fictional book or or more of a a lesson of sorts. And in that book, The Great Divorce, um, it's about a person who basically has a dream about going to heaven and hell. And here he, uh, he's basically uh, uh, traveling, in his travels, he meets this group of people. And they're waiting, they believe they're waiting to get into heaven. And they're so upset, they're outside the gate, and they're so upset because around them are all these people who they don't believe deserve to be there. And they're complaining, and they're angry, and they're, they're just grumbling. And he says, they don't need to, they don't deserve to be here, me. God's been waiting for me to get here all my life, and now I'm here. Basically, I deserve to be here. And yet, if you read on in the book, they're in hell. They're distant from God. They're the ones that actually have turned their noses not just away from the people around them, but turned their noses away from God himself. And that's why they're angry. And that's why they're judging other people. We look at people with different lifestyles. We look at people with different values. Every one of us has that one person in the office, at least. Every one of us has that group of people that we despise. We just turn our, we just look at their values. We look at their personalities and we turn our noses away at them. We look at anyone who doesn't do the things the way we would do it. You know, I would do it differently. We turn our noses away with them. God doesn't do that. God cares every bit as much for Jonah personally. And that's why it had to be Jonah. He could have called a person whose heart breaks for those people just like his heart breaks for them. But that's not what he does. He calls Jonah this this religious bigot, this this person who's just so against these people. And what he basically says is this, beyond your gifts, beyond your talent, Jonah, he's mentioned in other parts of the Bible, beyond your gifts, beyond your talent, I want you to understand my heart. I want you to know my heart. Yeah, the city can be dangerous. Yeah, it has got people who live differently than you, who think differently than you, who they've got different ideologies, different political destinations. Yes, we are violent as a culture. Yes, we can be cruel. Yes, we step all over each other to get ahead, and it's a rat race, and we're constantly trying to outdo one another. And yes, we're filled with pride, and yes, we're arrogant, and yes, we're angry, disillusioned, disoriented people at times. We're wealth-driven. We're sex-crazed. We're constantly driven to get ahead. The city is full of traffic jams. It's full of noise and pollution. But I love the city. We look at the subway and we say it smells bad, it's hot, and it's crowded. God says there are more people per square inch in that subway than you'll ever find in the suburb. I love the city. I love the city. My heart yearns for the city. I want you to go into the city. I want you to love the city the way I love the city because it's great. That's why it's great. That's why it's influential. And one day, he says, your final destination is not a garden. It's not a suburb. It's a city. Heaven is not a garden. Other religions, if you see movies like Avatar, 
You know, the whole basis of movies like Avatar is this desire. We have polluted the, the beauty of nature. We've corrupted it with progress, right? That's Avatar. You know, it starts in a garden. We're corrupting it with the city, but we need to bring it back to the garden. That's what we think the hope is. In fact, that's what most major religions believe. But not the gospel. The gospel culminates in a city. You start out in a garden... Then there's a fall, but it ends not with the restoration of the garden, but a city. The city is teeming. The city is beautiful. Why? Because it's teeming with media. It's teeming with the arts. It's teeming with culture and music and scholars and the marketplace, the commerce. That's why it's so varied. And it's a kaleidoscope of different people and colors and values, you know, and, and, and thinking. And it's amazing and it's beautiful. And God has a heart for it. That's God's heart. That's his strategy. Now we get to Jonah's sermon. Verse 4. Jonah, he begins to go into the city, and he goes a day's journey, and he calls out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah is not driven by the heart of God. Uh, Let me paint what's going on here. He's done everything he could do to run away from God, and he's so distant. You know, he goes down to Joppa, we said. And then from Joppa, he goes down into the ship. And then he goes down into the innermost part of the ship. And he goes down to the bottom. And then he lays down. He's trying to get as far away in his distance from God as possible. And God does with him one more. A storm comes. He hurls himself into the sea. And a fish swallows him up. And he goes all the way down. But this is the revival of Jonah. And in his revival, as he realized, God has saved me. And he prays this amazing prayer. The fish vomits him back up, out onto dry land. God calls him again, and this time he goes. He's going. And what's he doing? You've got to imagine what's going on. He's tired. Three days. He doesn't have food. He's been in the belly of a fish for three days. He's walking through modern-day Iraq. Very, very hot. Very, very humid. He's covered in fish, guts, vomit, and he's walking. Three days journey, right, through the city of Nineveh. But he only makes it through one day. Why? Because now he sees it. He sees their values. He sees their lifestyles. He sees the noise. He sees the pollution. He sees the cruelty. There are homeless people on the street. There are poor people and they're begging. He sees all the corruption. He sees the evil and and the wickedness. And he despises them and he can't stand them. And he says, you know, the city is nasty. The city, is, these people are not like me. I can't stand these people. And he's despising them. He doesn't just have things that are not in common. He says, I hate these people. They are cruel people. They are evil people. Look at the crime out here. This is a bad place. This is a dirty place. How could God love these people? And he gets one day. And here, you know, all prophets back in the day, Jonah is an esteemed prophet. He's no, it's not, this is not his first job. This is not his first project. Jonah knows that prophets were called to, one, preach judgment, but they always come back and they preach hope. Read books like Hosea, Amos, Malachi. Starts out with judgment and always ends with hope and a promise that God will come to redeem. And then here's Jonah's sermon. This is his message. Forty days and this, this, this city will be overturned. That's the voice of the religious. 
what he's really saying is, he's walking through the city, he sees all the violence, he sees all the cruelty, and he says, I want to get rid of the violence, I'm going to get rid of the crime, I'm going to get rid of the cruelty, this is my mission, I will get rid of the injustices in place. And what he's basically saying is, you, all of you, you better give it up, because disaster is coming right now, it's going to come. And you know what happens? They do. They do. The people actually come around. If you were a mayor of that town, you'd be blessed. You'd be thankful. If you were the president of this country, you'd be blessed to see people coming back, turning around and saying, we are going to end the violence. We are going to end the wickedness. We're no longer going to be unjust. We are going to follow the ways of God. You'd be blessed by that, but not Jonah. Jonah should have been pleased. This is the apex. This is the pinnacle of his ministry career. Any pastor would want that. 120,000 people coming to God because of one sermon, and he spoke five words in Hebrew. Five words in Hebrew. The most efficient sermon in all of history. And yet he's angry. He's, He's judging them. He wants violence. And that is the traditional response that we have to the city. On one hand, you have people who exploit the city, who hate the city, who despise the city because it's dangerous and it's dirty and it's a bad influence and it's liberal. And we see the drugs and we see the sex and we see the violence and we hear, we hear the noise and we see the pollution. And, and, and pagan societies, they're, they're irreligious. They're violent. They're people just stepping all over each other to get ahead, go into center city. It's filled with people who want that. But the irony of this text is that it's the religious people who are equally violent. It's not because they're without goodness, but because they believe they are good. It's not because they're without God, but because they think they have God. That's the religious. Think about it. Every time you refuse to forgive somebody, what are you doing? You're promoting violence. Every time you judge the behavior or a decision of another person, how do you feel? You feel violent. Every time you turn your nose away from somebody, because at the least they're very different from you, and you say, what do you say? We talked about, uh, last week we talked about, you know, when you say, get out of my face, when you turn your face away, what are you saying? I don't want intimacy with you. I don't want you near me. That's violence. Every single time you sit with somebody and you start to gossip, you gossip about individual people or about groups of people, what are you doing? You're promoting violence. That's violence. You're destroying reputations. You're you're ruining people's lives. That's violence. Today, wars are being fought over religion. Over religion. You see wars being fought over politics. Makes sense, we say. Because that's what pagan societies do. It's liberals against conservatives. But this, wars are today are being fought over religion. The moment that you say, I can't believe that they did that, because I would never do that, what are you saying? You're stepping all over them to get ahead. You're saying, I deserve blessing. They don't. And that leads to a breaking down of society. That leads to the destruction of society. Jonah didn't want these people to be forgiven. He wanted them to be punished. Forty days, this city will be overturned. That's what he says. Later on, God asks him, chapter 4, which we'll get to next week, 
And it's an amazing resolution because everything that we learn in chapter one gets resolved. And it's going to teach us how to get resolved, how to find resolution ourselves. But here, in chapter four, God asks, do you have a right, Jonah, to be angry? You know how Jonah responds? He says, yes, I do. That's how he responds. He's so angry. God is basically asking Jonah, in his compassion, he says, have you forgotten the storm? Do you forget the fish? Do you forget the bottom of the sea? Do you forget the vomit? Have you forgotten my call? This is the point. Religion is this. I obeyed. Therefore, I'm accepted. But the gospel is actually the opposite of that. The gospel is, I'm accepted. Therefore, I obey. Depending on how you, which word you put first, obedience or acceptance, it will shape the way you live the rest of your life. Religious people, they obey in order to be accepted. So it's natural, and, and that's the reason why they're always stepping, they're comparing themselves with other people, they're putting other people down, either, at the least in their minds, or sometimes in their gossip. They're constantly saying, you know, look at those people, look at those people, look at those people. You know, I'm better. You're stepping all over them. You're comparing yourself. You're putting people down. It's a violent culture. You're promoting violence. It's a violent culture. You're promoting that concept of natural selection. You're saying it's survival of the fittest and I'm more fit. It's no different than the irreligious communities that say, yeah, I need to, it's wealth. If wealth is the God, then I'm going to do whatever. And I'm going to compare people based on wealth. And I need to step all over them to get more wealth. It becomes a violent society. When you forget that you've been saved, not on the basis of your record, but on the basis of Jesus' record, that you're a sinner saved by grace, when you forget that, it's easy. It's easy to look at people who don't obey and say they're not worthy. It's easy to do that. That's the root of anger. That's the beginning of the root of anger. It's the beginning of the root of bitterness and jealousy and covetousness. What you're saying is, I deserve this because I obeyed. That is ultimate bitterness because you're speaking, it's a direct passage to communicating with God and saying, you are making a mistake. Why aren't you looking at me? I deserve blessing. Why aren't I getting promoted? Why aren't I accepted? Why aren't I in a relationship? And yet she is and he is. That's the root of bitterness. Some of us, we're like the Assyrians. We put our self-worth in our career and in our wealth, in our titles, in our relationships, in our children, and we say we're just going to acquire more. We're going to acquire more stuff. And we're always saying, I need to get better. I need to get more. I need to gain more. Why? Because your self-worth depends on it. You know, if you put your self-worth in your wealth and you don't have wealth, you have low self-worth. So what do you do? You've got to climb, you've got to climb, you've got to climb. You're constantly working. You're constantly working because that's the way you're going to feel acceptable. But other people, we find worth in our obedience. We find worth in our obedience. That's the way we feel acceptable before God. Not in in our wealth or not in our titles, but in our goodness. And so what do you do? You need to be good. You need to be better. You need to be better. You need to be better than them. And you're working and you're working and you're working. You see that? Are you tired? Are you restless? It leads to violent it, re- it leads to violence, a violent society. The gospel teaches us that we are acceptable to God 
on the basis of Jesus' goodness, not our goodness. And if you really believe that, then you know that, gosh, if the Lord has saved me, if I've been through the belly of the fish and I've come out, then anybody, and if I receive the gospel, then anybody can receive the gospel. If I can be saved, then anybody can be saved. If I can be renewed, then anybody can be renewed. If God can have compassion for me, then he can have compassion for anyone. And that means I need to have compassion. That's how you end the violence. And you're going to realize over time, when you do that, you're actually going to be able to admit over time that there are people who don't know God that are actually more gifted than you, that are actually more noble than you sometimes, that actually make better decisions than you sometimes, that are actually more, more talented than you, even more moral than you sometimes. And you can start to look at your commonalities and appreciate them for the things that you have in common. You can embrace partnerships, relationships with all different types of people, all different backgrounds, all different races, all different professions, sometimes different values, different ways of seeing the world. That's how you live a bigger life because you're expanding your horizons. You're coming to understanding. Some of us have been scarred by the city, failed relationships, failed careers, failed choices, and you, you say, you know, I hear what you're saying, but right now, I just don't have it in me. I'm tired. I have children. I've worked and worked and worked. I'm just tired. I don't have it in me emotionally to embrace other people. God, I don't know how to say this as a pastor. God is calling you. You think Jonah, coming out of the fish, took a break? I don't, to be honest, I don't even think he washed up. I don't think he washed up. And he's terrible. It's not like he had to say, you know what, I thought things wrong. I need to get my act together. I need to rethink uh, my relationship with God and, and rethink and understand his grace before people. That's not what he did. In fact, he preached possibly the worst sermon in the entire Bible ever recorded because he's so angry, because he's so spiteful, because he's so hateful, and yet God used it. And if God can use sufferers and sinners... God can work in them. God will work through them to reach other sufferers and sinners like us. Will you be sensitive to that? Now, we don't really know who wrote the book of Jonah. Actually, we, we don't, it's, it's not very clear. Um, I believe it's got to be Jonah. It must have been Jonah. It had to have been Jonah or somebody Jonah was discipling or teaching. And the reason why is because who was there for the calling? To hear the call. Who was there to hear the prayer? Who was there uh, to see all that was going on? Who was there with Jonah in chapter 4 in his dialogue with God? It had to have been Jonah. Or somebody Jonah was speaking with. And, and, and the thing is, you know, Jonah wasn't saying this to say, you know, so learn my lesson. You know, if you do bad things, bad things are going to happen to you. That's not the lesson. Jonah's basically saying, I was a fool. I was foolish. Look at this passage and laugh. Laugh with me here. He's looking back and he's saying, I was so foolish. I so much, I was so resistant. And yet God is so faithful. And he was so good. And he did so much. And, and he worked through me even when I was at the lowest point in my life. And if he could do that through a person like Jonah, he can do that through you. In your fatigue, 
in your weakness, in your distance, if you feel that way, you could be a lot closer to God than you think. A lot closer. He is at hand. What did Jonah see that really started to begin to turn around? And this is the last point. I'm going to go quickly through this. You see perhaps one of the most um, powerful turnarounds, uh, powerful responses to any sermon in the Bible. Verses 5 and 6. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And then he issued this proclamation, and he says, I want every man and every beast to do the same thing. And the whole city, 120,000 of them, believed God and repented. Now, unbelievable. That's an unbelievable response. Um, God is using this king in his response to teach us a little bit about repentance. What is repentance? How do we come around? What does it mean to repent? Here's this king. At that moment, the most powerful person in the world, because he's a king of the most powerful empire in the world today. And what does he do? The news of Jonah, this person who came out from three days in the sea and he rose from the dead, comes out, in utter, just, he's tattered, and he's got nothing, and he's walking through the city, and he's preaching judgment, and all of a sudden, people are coming around, and that news finally boils up to the king, and the king hears this news, and instantly, what does he do? He gets up from his throne. In chapter one, Jonah gets up to run. In chapter three, Jonah finally gets up, and he's so reluctant But he goes to obey the Lord. But this pagan king rises up upon hearing the word and he's cut to the heart and he takes off his robe. The robe was a symbol of authority. That's how you identified the king. He takes off his royalty and he gets down. We know that in chapter one, Jonah went down, 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 down to get away from God. This man gets down. He sits in ashes. Ashes mean I am ruined. You know, I am unclean. He's sitting in sackcloth. He's taken off his clothes. He's in sackcloth. And he's saying, my country is in ruins. There is disaster on me. And he says, I need healing. I need to be cleansed. That's what he's saying. Help me. There was power. I'm letting go of my power. I'm letting go of my rights. I'm letting go of my authority. I'm letting letting go of everything that I believe I deserve. I'm letting it go. That's the step to renewal. He says, I believe I had rights. I have no rights. Not before God, I don't. I believe I had power, and now I see true power. I'm letting it go. I thought I had authority, and now I faced with true authority. I need to step down. He's renouncing his kingdom in that instance. And he gets down in humility. And he says, we need help. And God, he's so gracious. He's so gracious. At the slight hint of repentance, he says, I'm going to relent from my anger. That's an amazing thing because if you see, God never becomes personal to this king. He never becomes personal. In this passage, you know, he, he's, he's risen, he's done, and he sits down, he does all these things. But the word God that is being used here is a very generic term for God. It's a very generic term, Elohim. God is still impersonal. He doesn't know God. 
And that's why he says there's still some insecurity. He says maybe God will relent from his anger. Maybe he will save us. Maybe he will turn from his anger. And yet God, at that hint of repentance, says I will let it go. Later on, the Assyrians, they wreak havoc again. They actually devastate Israel and they continue on in their wickedness and actually it gets to a pinnacle and God destroys Nineveh. He destroys them. But here, God relents from his anger. He doesn't pour it out. And if you, let, if you really sat, stopped and thought about this, you'd say, well, then where's the justice? You know, he's crazy, cruel people. Where's the justice? God just says, oh, you're sorry? They seem kind of sorry. I'll let him go. Huh? You'd say, where's the justice? Centuries later, there was another sign of Jonah. In the book of Matthew, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, show us a miracle. Jesus says, I will not give you a miracle except the sign of Jonah. In other words, Jonah comes, the appearance of this person who's risen from the dead comes into the city. The king saw that. That was credible enough that God was speaking there and it brought him to repentance and it temporarily eases wickedness. But Jesus here says, I am the greater sign of Jonah. One day, my patience will come to an end. One day, all injustice, all oppression, all wickedness, and all selfishness, it will be destroyed. And Jonah says, I, I, you know, Jesus, I will arise and I will step down. I, you know, when, he, when this king stepped down, he still had his kingdom. When Jesus stepped down, he gave up his kingdom. When this king took off his robes, he still had authority. When Jesus stepped down, no one recognized him. No one saw who he was. He gave up all authority, all power, his entire identity. When this king came down, he was humble. And it was kind of an insincere humility. But when Jesus came down, he was humble all the way to the end. All the way to the cross. And on the cross... This king says, maybe God, in our repentance, will, will turn from his anger. Maybe God will let it go. And verse 10, it says, God did let it go, for he had not done it. That's what he says. On the cross, Jesus, he's suffering the greatest storm, a cosmic storm. And here he's saying, I am ruined to the core. Why? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he's saying here is that my God has turned his face away. In other words, his entire wrath was poured out on me. Jonah, you know, of these 120,000 Ninevites who are so wicked, so sinful, at the slightest hint of repentance, God says, I will let you go. You say, Where the, where's the justice? Here's the justice on the cross. The most perfect person that ever lived on the world cries out, I am ruined. I am unclean. I am humbled. I am in ashes. I am suffering the ruin and the disaster of my people. It has fallen on me. The most powerful king that the world will ever see has surrendered. And it wasn't insincere. He was totally sincere. He was utterly sincere. And he says, I 
and ruined, and this is real. And he wasn't just naked. He didn't just put on ashes. He didn't just put on sackcloth. He was in ruin, and he was unclean. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin. He was totally clean to become sin so that we, in him, we would become the righteousness of God. Where is the justice? The justice was poured out on Christ. Where is the mercy? We get the mercy. We get the compassion. We get the love. Jesus was forsaken so that we could be accepted. Jesus was unclean so that we could be clean. Jesus gave up power so that we could have power. Jesus was afflicted so that we could be healed. That's the gospel. If you take that gospel and plant it in, you know it is cut, it's going to cut to the heart because you know you don't deserve it. We are wicked. We are evil. We are sinful. And you know that from the moment you woke up this morning because of things you thought and things you did. And yet we can come. We can come. And we can look at the people next to us. Generally, we sit. Our grace extends about as wide as the seats that are right around our vicinity. You have to look across the seats. And you know that these people are not like you. You don't know them. You're different from them. And yet you can say, wow, if I can be renewed, they can be renewed. That's the commonality. Let's take it one step further. You can look outside the city and you say, you know what? If I, if we can be renewed, they can be renewed. That's the power. It doesn't rest on what we do. Look at Jonah, the worst sermon ever. That's going to be us. We're going to be tripping over ourselves, trying to serve the city. But God will use that in his power. And the proof is on the cross. Jesus was forsaken so that God's people can be brought in. That's the gospel. That's good news. If you trust that, you will have a heart for the city. You will have a heart. You will have a heart for anybody. You will sit in the subway. You will look at that subway differently. You know, it doesn't mean like, oh man, like I have to start conversations with this guy. He smells bad and, and he's very different. I could tell he's not from my parts. That's not what it's saying. But you will have compassion and you will love the city. You won't just go in there to exploit it. You will love it. Friends, will you do that? Will you do that? Will you look at one another and will you look at your people And when you look at the people outside with compassion, the next time you're on a subway, the next time you're in the office, it is not just some place that you go to do work. God has called you to go. And that's where you are. Every time you go to get, you know, you stand by the water cooler, you know what you're doing? You are walking through Nineveh. Connect. Embrace. Love. For some of us, that's a lot more tangible. We're in areas where we're directly influencing people in a very, very tangible way. But for others of us, you've got to be more creative. But the point is we have to strategize. We all have to strategize. Just don't judge people who are not like you because you'll find that they're actually a lot more like you because we're all sinners and we both suffer. And that's very, very common. And that's like 90% of our lives. We have tremendous commonality. And we can be redeemed. Will you demonstrate the compassion of God and the friendship of God and the love of God today? It's the most visible sign that God is working through you and this community. Will you do that? Not on the basis 
of your success, but on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross. Not on the basis of your ability, but on the basis of Christ's ability. Will you do that? Will you attempt to do that? Pray through that. If you're struggling with that, hey, Jonah, in the belly of the whale, in the belly of the fish, he's praying. He's praying. Salvation is of the Lord. Will you trust that this week? Let's pray.